If you've got your Bibles, take them with me. We're going to look at the book of Mark tonight. Mark chapter 6. Now the youth are having a special event tonight. They're playing dodgeball down in the gym. And I know some of you are wanting to get down there to that. To participate with those youth in playing dodgeball. And so we're going to work through this tonight. Let me tell you... um, we're going to talk about one of my favorite stories tonight. Um, about what I love where it comes in the story of Jesus. I love how he handles it. I love some of the details that are in there. But tonight, what we're going to talk about is the issue of faith. And this is what I want you to understand, kind of from the beginning. That if we're God's children, if we are followers of Jesus, if we are people who have been redeemed by his blood, if we've been saved by his grace, then we have not just been forgiven. We've been called to live a brand new, radically different way of life. And we've been called to live by this thing called faith. And here's something we have to realize. Faith is not natural. Doubt is natural. Worry is natural. Discouragement is natural. Anxiety is natural. Looking over the fence and envying the life of someone else who seems to have it all together is natural. Fear is natural. Waking up in the morning with a knot in the pit of your stomach because you beat yourself up all night with an endless catalog of what-ifs is natural. Bringing God into your court of judgment and questioning His goodness and love is natural. Wondering if God's promises are true is natural. Faith isn't natural. So today, what I want to talk about, tonight what I want to talk about out of Mark chapter 6, is this question of how does God craft faith in us? How does He build faith in us? I think about the disciples that looked at Jesus one time and said, Lord, we believe, help us in our unbelief. Well, how does Jesus help us in our unbelief? But uh, before we do that, I want to make a distinction for you, and this is going to be important in the story. And this is the distinction. There is a huge, significant difference between amazement and faith. You can be amazed by things that you don't actually put your faith into. I was thinking about this, about my first trip ever to Panama City, Florida. Now, my first trip to Panama City, Florida, I went with my youth group for the last camp I could ever attend as a member of the youth group of First Baptist Irishburg. It was my last chance to go and it was my, after my senior year and I, I was working at uh, a textile factory and I had a week of vacation because this was my second summer and they gave me, they didn't pay me for it, but they told me I could go. And so I went down there with my, my youth group and we spent almost the entire week in a Christian camp in Panama City. But one evening... We got to go out, and we went out on the strip of Panama City. And out on the strip of Panama City is different than the Christian camp that I was in most of the week. There was one thing that I remember. There there were all these kind of like little places that had like pop-up amusement things. And one of the things that I remember about that trip is going towards the beach, and on, on one of the little piers, one of the little sections of the beach, they had this thing that, that just amazed me. It was about 50 foot high metal frame. 
there were elastic bands hanging from it. At the bottom of the elastic band, there was a pouch. And they would strap one or two people into that pouch, pull them back, and launch them over the Gulf of Mexico. Go out and fly back and out and back. It was one of those rides that you paid $7 for and go out and say, I almost died tonight. It only cost me $7. Now, I just sat there and looked at people thinking, what are you doing? Just absolutely amazed me. I was just in awe of it. But I can tell you one thing. They did not strap me into the pouch. Right? I was amazed by it, but I did not put my faith into it. And I like thrill rides. I like roller coasters. I like that kind of stuff. I I just prefer more between me and the open sea than a little pouch. Right? There's a difference between being amazed and placing your faith in something. In the book of Mark, we're going to look starting in chapter 6, starting in verse 45. But a couple of quick things about Mark. Mark is hard-hitting. It's fast-paced. It's a very modern gospel in that way. It is the um, attention deficit disorder gospel. Not a lot of explanations. It just goes from one scene to another. Immediately he did this, then he did this, then he went here, then he did that. And Mark has two themes really in his gospel. The first is this, is that he wanted to demonstrate to us that Jesus of Nazareth Nazareth, is in fact the Son of God. And he doesn't leave any room for neutrality in that. Mark is the perfect example of the gospel that makes that declaration that C.S. Lewis made famous, which is when you look at the totality of what Jesus did and said, you have three options about him. He is either a liar, that he did not, that he said these things that he knew were not true about who he was, and so he was a liar. He was a lunatic, which meant he was deceived into thinking he was what he said he was, but he could not be, or he is Lord. Those are your three options. These people that say, well, he's just a good teacher. Mark leaves no ambiguity. Jesus said he was God. You either have to say he was lying about that, he was crazy, or it's true. Mark puts it right in your face. But here's the other theme that he has. Jesus collects these disciples, followers around him, and his intention isn't that they would just be recipients of the work of the kingdom, but that they would be instruments of the work of the kingdom as well. Jesus calls these men unto himself, uh, these 12 primary men. Jesus realizes his time is short. Let let me just just think about this for a minute, okay? Coming up in August, I will have been pastor of First Baptist Church Gillisville for seven years. That is twice as long as Jesus had with the apostles. Now, obviously I'm not Jesus, but if you ask me today, have you done everything in seven years you think you need to get accomplished? My answer would be no, because otherwise I wouldn't be here anymore. So Jesus had, now think about this, three and a half years to impart to these 12 men everything they needed, knowing that one of them was going to betray him. So really 11 to carry on his mission after he's gone to the uttermost parts of the world. You ever notice that when your time gets condensed, 
things that used to seem important aren't as important. Right? And so all this other stuff to deal with you don't have. And so what we see in the book of Mark especially is cut down to the core of what it took for Jesus to develop in them these men into men of faith. Because they weren't. Jesus works to build in them, to craft faith in them. One of the ways we're going to see that in a minute that he did that was to introduce some kind of difficulty in life. And in the middle of the difficulty, he would reveal his glory. In fact, there's kind of a little equation that works its way through Mark, a a gospel equation. Um, It just says this, divine power plus divine compassion equals everything you need. Throughout the book of Mark, Jesus kind of demonstrates divine power plus divine compassion equals everything you need. If you just like the symbols, DP plus DC equals EYN, right? Divine power plus divine compassion equals everything you need. Look at chapter 6, starting in verse 45. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, where he while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out in the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass them by, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Got in the boat with them and the wind ceased and they were utterly amazed or astounded. They did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. What do you like about this story? You tell me. What do you like about it? That's good. Somebody else. It's so cool. What's cool about it, Teresa? Yeah. Because that doesn't happen, right? It's not like he's he's uh, walking on the ice. That's not happening, is it? When we see people walk on ice, not the other day we were walking by something and Eli. Oh, I know it was. We were over at we were eating at a fine restaurant establishment, the Eighty Eight Kitchen. Y'all know Eighty Eight Kitchen is on Rivergate Chinese buffet. It's it's got a it's got a bridge before you go in, and so we were going over the bridge, and it was the, all the water underneath it where they keep the fish usually. I hope the fish aren't in there right now, because it was frozen solid. And Eli said, "I want to get out there and skate on that." I was like, "No, you know, because you're gonna." It wasn't that sturdy, right? They're yeah, yeah, they're rowing, they're going, they're putting effort in. And Jesus just casually saunters by. You said the storm quits, right, at the end. Not the only time Jesus calms a storm. Now, we don't have it in this instance, but we know from this story in other places, what else happens in this? Jesus walks towards the boat, right? What else happens? Peter gets out, walks on the water. Now, now we, we get on to Peter sometimes because he ends up sinking. But think about this. In the history of the world, there have been two people to walk on water, Jesus and Peter. There are 11 other, as, some, as John Ortberg in his book, If You Want to Walk, walk on Water, You've Got to Get Out of the Boat. It's a great book. 11 other, John Ortberg calls boat potatoes. Just sitting there, and Peter gets out, right? Here's what I want to do tonight. I want to look at how 
This story shows Jesus building faith in these disciples and what that means for us. Now, at the beginning of the story, at the beginning of this passage, we find the disciples in a moment of difficulty, right? They're trying to row their way across the Sea of Galilee to Bethsaida on the other side. They're facing an impossible headwind. Angry seas. If you look at the kind of time clues in the past, they've probably been rowing for about seven or eight hours. That's not fun. Against a headwind. They didn't have a trolling motor on the back or a big one either. They've probably been rowing for seven, eight hours. They are beyond their strength. They're beyond their ability. They're in a situation that at this point is not only futile, it's not only exhausting, it's potentially dangerous. Because they're out there in the middle of this storm and they can't do anything about it. When reading the Bible, when you see situations like this, sometimes you ought to ask the question. In fact, you ought to ask this question anytime you kind of see this. Okay, are there lessons to learn here? Are there reasons they're there? Maybe they have a reason they're in this mess. Maybe they were disobedient to something God asked them to do or they made a foolish choice or they just so full of themselves they thought they had greater strength and wisdom than they actually had. But if you look at this passage, none of that's true, right? Why are they out on the lake? Why are they out on the Sea of Galilee? Why? Because Jesus told them to, right? Immediately, he says, get in the boat and go. These disciples are in this situation precisely because they're doing exactly what Jesus told them to do. They're exactly where Jesus wants them to be. The mess is Jesus' mess. And I'll explain that a little more in a minute because for me, you're uncomfortable when we're using that phrase. It's not the result of their failure. It's not the result of a bad choice. It's not the result of a foolish decision. It's not the result of a lack of wisdom. It's a result of doing exactly what Jesus said in a very precise command. Now, you ask yourself, why would Jesus, full of grace, full of mercy, tender love, faithful, patient, ever choose for his disciples to be in that kind of station? Why? I read a pastor this week that said, he was preaching on this passage to his congregation. He said, I'm about to hurt some of your feelings. He says, but if you can't answer that question, then you may not have a clue of what God does in our lives. You see, Jesus knows something about those boys in the boat. He knows how self-righteous they can be. He knows how full of a sense of their own strength and wisdom they can be. He knows how much their allegiance of their heart is more to their own little self-oriented kingdoms than it is to the grand purpose of His kingdom. So here's why He tells them to go. And it's important for us to understand. Jesus takes them where they wouldn't have chosen to go on their own in order to produce in them what they could not achieve on their own. And there are times in your life that God will take you where you would not have chosen to go in order to achieve what you could not achieve on your own. And here's the thing. You know what the Bible calls that? Grace. Now, it's not what we usually think of grace as. It's not that soft pillow of grace. And sometimes even in those midst of difficult moments, we're crying, where's the grace of God? And we're getting it. 
We're in the midst of it. If grace is getting what we would not deserve or do not deserve, these disciples are about to get a lesson in faith that they do not deserve, but will take them farther than they ever could have gone on their own. It's not the grace of release. It's not the grace of release. Those are coming. And we'll have those, and there'll be moments of those. Right now, oftentimes, what we need is the grace of refinement, not the grace of comfort. Somebody has said that what is demonstrated in this passage of Scripture and throughout Scripture is a term that we don't like and don't use, which is uncomfortable grace. But the truth is, this side of eternity, the grace of God comes to us sometimes in uncomfortable forms. And you may be saying, where? Where is the grace that God has promised me? And you're getting it. But it's uncomfortable. You see, if you're God's child and you're going through difficulty, you're going through an unexpected moment that you have never chosen for yourself, you're going through a trial or suffering, you better not name those difficulties as a sign of his inattention or his unfaithfulness. Because Scripture makes clear that sometimes he allows us to be in position, sometimes he pushes us into places in order that it might be a time for him to cleanse us and renew us and refine us and scripture says that it is a sign of his zealous love for us that he refines us the book of hebrews says those he loves he disciplines you're not being forgotten you're not being forsaken you're being loved i mean look at the passage again here it starts in verse 45 it says He made him get in the boat. We talked about that. Verse 46. After that, he went up on the mountain to pray. When the evening came, the boat was out on the sea. And he was alone on the land. And he saw they were making headway painfully. For the wind was against them. But by the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. As Teresa mentioned, walking on the sea. We, 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 We sometimes... Read the Bible, as one scholar said, with such mental monotone that a state of spiritual paralysis prevents us from interacting with the text in a way that it ought to be interacted with. He is walking on the sea. Now, I want you to notice a couple of things here before we kind of get into what significance that has. I also want you to notice that that Scripture makes it kind of clear that he sees them from the shore, right? Not making headway. And he decides the best way to deal with the headway they're not making is to show them up. Right? I'm going to walk by them. They can't make headway, 12 of them, with oars on a boat. I'm just going to walk past them. Now, Jesus has a little bit of sense of humor, but we're going to see in a minute, it's more than that. In fact, a phrase that I want to use is the word theophany, all right? We'll talk about that. The phrase walking on the sea, by the way, I believe is the linchpin, the turn point, the exploding moment of this passage. Because the minute Jesus takes a walk, there are two things you are confronted with. The first is this, that He is Lord God Almighty, King Creator over all the universe. He can do anything in creation He wants to do. Right? Any of y'all ever tried walking on water? Not, why, why haven't you tried it? Because you know it ain't going to work, right? It's not one of those things you think in your mind. Now, um, I, have, uh, I have one of my sons who will remain nameless, but he's the second one. 
who is convinced at some point in his life he's going to be able to run fast enough like Dash from the movie Incredibles that he can run on top of the water. Can I tell you something? It ain't going to happen. Right? What happens when you put your foot on top of water? It goes under, right? Unless you've got a boat underneath you, it's going under, right? Jesus is Lord. The average dude doesn't walk on the water. A guy that's just a good moral teacher doesn't walk on the water. If what Mark is trying to demonstrate is that Jesus Christ, what he's trying to say is that Jesus Christ of Nazareth is in fact the Son of God, case closed, deal done, argument one, this is the Lord, bow down and worship. But there's something else you need to notice here. Think with me for a minute. The minute Jesus takes the walk, you know what he has in mind. You can get a sense of what his intention is for the moment. You say, well, I don't understand what you're saying. Well, think about this. If all Jesus wanted to do was to remove the difficulty from the life of the disciples at this moment, what could he have done? Stop. Quit. Quiet. Be still. Right? He sees them on the shore. He's standing there. The storm is raging. They're not making any progress. If he wanted to remove the difficulty, if that's all that he cared about, he wouldn't have had to take a walk. All he would have said is, peace, be still. The wind would have died down. The waves would have gotten calm. The boys in the boat would have rowed the rest of the way to the Sea of Galilee in ease. Comfort. Could have put the lazy boy back and coasted. So here's what you know. Jesus doesn't care about the difficulty. He cares about the boys, the disciples, in the midst of the difficulty. He wants to do something in the heart and the lives of the men who are in the middle of the difficulty. He's not making life easy. He's after transforming the guys who are in this moment. And transformation is not easy. Now, now think about it. When you're in one of those unexpected, difficult moments in life, what's your highest priority in prayer? I mean, honestly, what's your highest priority in prayer? Get it over with. Right? If you're in the boat, what are you praying? Stop the storm. I don't care that you can walk on water. That's a neat trick. Show it to me when it's not storming. Right? I mean, let's be honest. Human nature here. We want, you're not saying there, Lord, I just need a little more redemption. Bring it. Could you bring some more storm in my life? I need some more difficulty. Lord, thank you for this difficulty. Can I have some more? i got to be refined a little bit better. That's not what we're thinking, is it? None of us are saying, hey, could you make this tougher for me? I really haven't learned that lesson yet, Lord. In those really difficult moments, are you proclaiming redeemed, how I love to proclaim it, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb? Or do you get a little fidgety? A little impatient. Come on, God. God, I'm, I don't know if you know this, but I'm over here in kind of a tough spot right now. You're sovereign. You can do anything you want to. Just remove it. Just could you take it away. Make it easier. Listen, here's, what, here's our deal, God. You take care of this now. I'll sing that Great Is Thy Faithfulness song when we're done. All right? Just take care of this. I won't ask you for anything else later. We can just get this done now. Here's the sad thing. 
For most of us, if we're honest with ourselves, we would rather have comfort than redemption. We prefer a predictable, easy life more than the awesome, transforming work of the Redeemer. We'd rather be around unmessy people. We'd rather live through weeks that are quite easy and predictable. We'd rather have our plans and our dreams come true rather than be transformed by difficult grace. I mean, really, it doesn't take much for some of us to question the goodness of God. And we may say these things out loud, but we often believe it. I mean, a flat tire makes us question God's goodness. God, I can't believe it. I thought you loved me. I was trying to serve you. If another thing happens this week, I just don't know what I'm going to do. If you love me, there'd be air in my tire right now. You lose your keys in about 15 minutes looking for them. You're about 75% towards atheism. I don't know where you are, God. I can't find my keys. Someone in your family has the audacity to disagree with you. They won't bow to the glory of your always rightness. You question whether God knows what's going on. Sometimes we're hard on those guys in the boat, but the minute Jesus takes a walk, you know what he has in mind. Now, here's the scene. You've got to get the scene in your brain. The wind's still blowing. The waves are still crashing. The boat is still bobbing up and down, up and down, but... Now Jesus has inserted himself in the scene. He's right there with the disciples. In fact, it says he meant to pass them by. Now, that doesn't mean he needed a GPS. He didn't know exactly where they were. He was making a big enough arc that the disciples could see him. And here's what's interesting. I use the word theophany. In the Old Testament, there are a couple of places where it uses that phrase, he intended to pass them by. And both or the places that it uses that in the Old Testament, the idea is that God is about to reveal himself to somebody. That the, the glory of the Lord is going to pass by Moses. He's going to pass by the children of Israel. And God is demonstrating the greatness of who he is. The technical term for that is theophany, a revealing of God. A momentary understanding of who God is in a better way. And so when it says he meant to pass them by, it's saying he wanted not just to walk past them and go, good to see you, I'll see you later. It's saying he wants to demonstrate to them the greatness of who he is in the midst of what they are enduring. And he only stops because they see him. They see him, they immediately start singing Amazing Grace and Kumbaya. Is that what happens? No, what happens? They thought it was a ghost. Well, what would you think? I think it's a ghost. I think I didn't know what it was, but it can't be a man because men do not walk on water. Thinking I'm watching an episode of Scooby-Doo is what I'm thinking. Where's the mystery machine when I need it, right? It says they thought it was a ghost. They cried out and were terrified. Now, here's the sea. Raging, storm all around. And Jesus has defied all of the laws of nature. He has injected himself into this moment and he wants to do that. He set the whole thing up because this moment is meant to transform everything these disciples think about themselves, think about life, think about him, think about who he is, what he's there to do. And yet they're not encouraged, they're not comforted, they're not heartened at all. They are terrified. The only thing they can think is it must be a ghost. They seem utterly prepared, utterly unready for this moment. I mean, they knew who they were walking with. What did they just come from? Feeding the 5,000. That's not normal. 
right? They had seen this guy raise a girl from the dead. She was certifiably dead, over with. And he raises her back to life. This is not some ordinary human being. They probably should have thought, if something miraculous is happening, guess who's probably doing it? Jesus. Yet in this moment, they seem utterly unprepared and terrified all over again. Like, we don't know who he is. So what about you? When difficulty comes into your life, what happens to your heart? Where does your heart go? Do you panic all over again? Do you wonder why the person's life next to you is so much easier? Do you question God's goodness and love all over again? Do you panic trying to answer questions that you have no ability to answer all over again? What happens when you go through moments of difficulty? Where does your heart go? I heard a preacher say this week, he tells people something all the time. He's a counselor, and he says when, they, when I tell them this, they, they laugh, but he's quite serious. He says, no one is more influential in your life than you because no one talks to you more than you do, right? Now, you are in constant conversation with your health. It, now, it's important not to move your lips when you're talking to yourself or to switch places like you're having an actual conversation, all right? People will take you somewhere if you do that but you're constantly in your mind having a conversation with yourself the things that you say to you about you are profoundly important because they're formative of the way you will act react and respond in moments of difficulty everyone in this room is a theologian everyone in this room is a philosopher Everyone in this room is an archaeologist who will dig through the mound of his existence trying to make sense out of his or her life. That's who we are. You know, people, like I get to preach at the, you know, on a regular, uh, regular basis. But I'm not the only preacher you listen to. And I'm just talking about the guys you listen to in the radio or you watch online. There's another preacher you listen to all the time. And if you haven't figured it out, it's you. You're always preaching to yourself some kind of gospel. It can be the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that will encourage you, comfort your heart. Or it could be some anti-gospel, a gospel of poverty or partiality or aloneness or inability or weakness or doom. When you're going through those unexpected times, what you preach to yourself is vitally important. I'm not talking about some kind of self-help guru stuff, okay? I'm not talking about I'm, I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay kind of thing. I'm talking about realizing what the gospel teaches us. What happens next is one of the most beautiful pictures in Scripture of the loving, tender grace of God. Wind is still blowing, waves are still crashing, boats still bobbing up and down. Nothing has changed in the context of the scene except Jesus is now there. But disciples aren't hardened, are they? They're panicking. And in this moment of storm and panic, Jesus speaks. And what He says is beautiful. Now, He could have had the right to say, I'm done. I've taught you. I've had it. I I, I demonstrated unbelievable glory in your midst. You have hard teaching. You know, listen, you've heard teaching after teaching. It's like you've never heard anything I've ever said. It's like you've never witnessed anything I've ever done. I don't get it. While you're just doing this, I'm tired. Get out of the boat. I'm going to get some new disciples. Is that what he does? Is that what he does? No, I hope not. Y'all looking at me like, I don't know, what does he do? 
No, that's not what he does. Here's what he says. He says, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. Now, let me just say, the English translations do not do a real good job with this. Okay? Because I am deeply persuaded that what he actually says here is, take heart, I am. Don't be afraid. That changes things. Right? Because when he says, I am, he is taking one of the names of God and saying, I am. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The one on whom all the covenant promises rest. The one who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. The one who created the word by the spoken word. The one who holds it together by his power. The one who is sovereign over every experience you will ever be in. The I am has invaded your life by his grace. It's impossible for you ever to be in any moment of difficulty by yourself because I am has invaded your life. I am is here. The I am is here. And no matter what you're dealing with in life, Jesus says, take heart, I am. You see, this moment is about Jesus demonstrating these guys. He set the whole thing up. When he's standing on the shore, he thinks this is the perfect moment to show them that no matter what they're doing in life, where they're in the midst of the difficulty that they are, I am with them. So I'm not going to calm the storm. I'm going to go to them and say, I am here in the midst of the storm. It's a moment manufactured where he would now reveal the heart of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every miracle of Jesus is meant to reveal something about the gospel. And this particular miracle reveals that he's saying, don't you understand, I am with you always, forever. Never alone. Never left to your own wisdom. Never left to your own strength. Never left to your spiritual resources. Because I am is with you. That's the gospel. You see, if you're a parent and you're at the end of an unusually exhausting and discouraging parental day because it seems as though your children have conspired together to be particularly rebellious and you're walking down the hall to break up one more fight, say to yourself, I'm not alone in this discouraging parental moment because I am has invaded my life by grace. If you're facing things in your marriage that you never thought you'd face and your heart is broken and you don't know what to do, you better say to yourself, I'm not in this marriage moment by myself because my life has been invaded by the grace of the one who is the I am. If you've lost your job because somebody a city a thousand miles away has made it a decision that ended your division of the company and you're driving home and you don't know what you're going to say to your family, you don't know what the next several months is going to be like, you say to yourself, I'm not in this moment by myself because my life has been invaded by the grace of I am. If you're facing disloyalty in a relationship and you're hurt and you try to let it go, but you can't, it seems like it haunts you. You say to yourself, I'm not in this moment by myself because my life has been invaded by the grace of I am. If you're facing sickness physically and your body feels weaker than it's ever felt and you're haunted by little pains, you wonder if it's more than just little pains. You say to yourself, I'm not in this physical moment alone because my life has been invaded By I am. If you're an elderly person, you're facing the weakness of old age and you wonder how much strength you have left and for how long, you say to yourself, I'm not in this moment alone because my life has been invaded by the grace of I am. 
I am is here. The I am is here. The I am is here. That's why Jesus sent him out to that storm. He knew it was coming and he knew he had a moment. Sometimes you need the storm in order to see the glory. That's good. You might want to write that down. Sometimes you need the storm in order to see the glory. Sometimes it's in the middle of the storm when you feel weaker than you've ever felt that you actually begin to get it. You begin to realize who you are, what you've been given, that it's not all your shoulders, that it's not left to your strength, that it's not left to your wisdom because you've been given glorious, powerful, big, right here, right now grace because the I am is with you. Look at what happens next. And this is kind of a sad part. And he, Jesus, got into the boat with them and the wind finally ceased. And they were utterly amazed. Now, that's not a compliment. In case you didn't know that, because Mark makes an explanatory comment next. And Mark almost never makes explanatory comments because he is the ADD gospel and he is jumping from one thing to the next. Luke's the doctor. Luke explains it all. Luke researches everything and lays it out. Mark can't resist, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to make an editorial comment, he says, and they were amazed or astounded because they didn't understand about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. You see, there's a huge, significant difference between being amazed and putting your faith in something. You can be amazed by things that you don't actually put your faith into. And here, here's what amazement is, all right? Amazement is when you're taken beyond the categories that you're carrying around to explain or understand something, okay? Say it again. Amazement is when you're taken beyond the categories that you're carrying around to explain or understand something. There are going to be times over the next two weeks when I will be utterly amazed because there are going to be athletes doing things at this Winter Olympics that I can't imagine how in the world they do that. Okay? I got on top of a skateboard once in my life and almost broke my leg. How they get on snowboards and do 720 degree spins and land, I do not understand. It amazes me. How they go as fast as they do on ice skates. How many of you have ever been on ice skates? It is not a fun experience. People, I love ice skating. No, I don't. It's cold and I fall. Those two things don't go together, all right? They will do things that will amaze me. It's when we're taken beyond what we can understand. Now, faith is when you accept God's declaration of Himself and His plan and you live on that basis. Faith is not just something you do with your brain. Faith is something you do with your life. Without faith, Hebrews 11 says, it's impossible to please God. For the one who draws near to Him must believe that He, see, that he exists. That's the acceptance thing. That's my willing acceptance of God's declaration. And then it says, and He rewards those who seek Him. Faith is taking action on the amazement. The truth is that there are a lot of people that are amazed but don't live by faith. You can be amazed by the grand sweep of the redemptive story in Scripture and not be living by faith. 
You can be amazed by the amazing logic of theology of the Word of God and not live by faith. You can be amazed by preaching that you hear week after week and not live by faith. You can be amazed at the worship music that you participate in and not live by faith. You can be amazed by the love of your Sunday school class and not live by faith. You can be amazed at the ministry opportunities that are available to you and not live by faith. You can be amazed at the resources that you have available to us in our generation to grow and mature and not live by faith. There's huge difference between amazement and faith. Mark describes and tells us why. He says they didn't understand about the loaves. Their hearts were hard. When he says they don't understand the loaves, he says they hadn't learned their lessons. He's taking the example of the 5,000, right? He says they saw those miracles and they didn't learn anything. And here's what you have to understand. It's possible to be a follower of Jesus Christ and have a hard heart. There's a physical word picture here. It's a story of a stony heart. Imagine for a moment, I had a stone in my hands about this big, okay? Imagine that I decided I was going to push with all my might on the stone. What's going to happen? Nothing, right? Nothing. The stone is hard. As hard as it is, it's resistant to change. It's not malleable. It's not pliable. It's not moldable. It's possibly one of God's children that have a hard heart. See, most of us are satisfied way too quickly of where we are. I don't think the big struggle of the church of Jesus Christ is dissatisfaction. I feel the big struggle of the church of Jesus Christ is satisfaction. We're too easily pleased. We're satisfied long before God's work of grace is completed. And here's the thing I know about Scripture. It says that he who began a good work in you will carry it on unto completion. Someone has described Jesus as a dissatisfied redeemer. He will not abandon his work. He will not stop what he has begun until every microbe of sin is delivered from every cell of every heart of every one of his children. And that is our hope. The result is that many of us are living a life of amazement instead of faith. You know, when I was teenager in early 20s and before I had kids I used to hear the stories of kids that like playing with the box better than the present and then one Christmas I bought Luke something that I was really proud of Susan and I had looked at it we'd seen it we thought this is perfect for him he was still younger two or three years old this is the perfect gift and parents grandparents you know when you find what you just think is the perfect gift you just can't wait right you just look forward to that moment. We wrapped it up nice. And we gave it to him. He pulled it out. And you know what he did, right? Put it off to the side and started playing with the box like a fort. Here's the problem of living by amazement instead of faith. It's like you've been given, if you're God's child, the most awesome, glorious gift that you could ever be given. It's a gift that's gorgeous from every side, from every perspective. It's a gift you could never earn, you could never achieve, and you do not deserve. It's the one gift that every human being who has ever taken a breath desperately needs, whether they know it or not. It's the ultimate gift of gifts. It's the only gift that you'll ever be given that has the power to change you, everything about you. It is glorious. It is awesome. It is the gift of gifts. It's the grace of the Lord Jesus. But I'm persuaded. In the face of being given that gift, there are many of us who are still content with playing with the box instead of enjoying the gift. 
They want just a little bit of what the Bible says. They want just a little bit of knowledge. They want just a little bit of ministry. They want just a little bit of a better marriage, just a little bit of better parenting. But they're not holding on to that gift of grace and saying, I can't believe I've been chosen from the mass of humanity to receive this. And they come on Sunday morning, and they come on Wednesday night, and they sing. And If you watched a video of their lives, though, they're driven and shaped by other values. One writer says, Jesus injected himself into that storm because that boat was filled with identity amnesiacs. They kept forgetting, these men did, who they were and didn't understand what they had been given. And because they didn't, their lives were driven by other hopes, dreams, and values. And so my challenge to you tonight from Jesus walking on the water is stop being simply amazed and start living by faith every day. Allowing the Lord in those difficult moments to chisel away at the issues that need to be chiseled away at in order to perfect you into the one that He's called you to be. Let's pray.